This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Dembele on 101.9 High FM. Good evening to all and welcome to tonight's installment of Beyond Governance. Uh, my name is Nimrod Dembele. I'm delighted to be in your company as we probe very complex uh, issues that have been bedeviling the country. Uh, we've picked up over a couple of weeks that the country is on fire. You know, so in some instances, people want to declare it a state of emergency. You know, people are looting left, right, and center. And in the same way, in the same vein, corporations and state-owned enterprises, you know, have the fashions of looting. Uh, if you don't believe me, you know, look at the state capture, and you tell me what you think. Uh, you know, we've become a, lo- a country of looters. Either way, we look at it. But anyway, before we get into the gist of tonight's conversation, uh, let me take this opportunity to thank uh, Mandy, Mandy Bacon, uh, but, um, you know, Kathy Kayla, who is now with us, uh, DJ Flo is standing in for Tabo, uh, and Zanati, as well as uh, uh, Vusi, for those that uh, have really done some selling work before we came through. If you missed our last our last conversation, uh, I implore you to really visit our website. We had a, a brilliant one. I would you know what I would imagine one of the most brilliant conversations I've had on air. We had the CEO of Business Leadership SA, uh, Miss Busi Mavoso, and I think she gave a sterling, sterling conversation. Go to our podcast and download the podcast and tell me exactly what you think. Uh, and as you are, as you are weighing in, in in that particular conversation, our SMS line is three four five one nine. Our telegram is number eight zero zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine, and I will be pleased to take your your emails. My email address is nimrod at today. You know, um, tonight conversation there's going to be two legs. Firstly, we will have a quick reflection on what is happening in the country and the impact of the kind of turbulence that we're seeing in the, in the economy. Um, and secondly, we'll look at how the state-owned enterprises, you know, has been turned around. Um, you know, uh, from from a business point of view, the first leg, you know, that I want us to really reflect on, in my view, boggles down on leadership. You know, uh, leadership is always seen during turbulences. We can all agree that uh, a real leader or the character of leader is seen during turbulences. South Africa is experiencing economic, social, and political turbulences, and sadly, uh, we, 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 there's not much of inspiration that we're deriving. Uh, from the power that had be, the past couple of weeks have seen spate of violence, you know, against foreign nationals, you know, crowds of looters descending into the streets of Hillbrook, Chippestown, Rosettenville, Tamisa and Jamiston, you know, all ransacking, you know, uh, foreign-owned shops. For me, it begs the following questions: Where is our intelligence services? How many people have been arrested? What is broken about home affairs? You know, you may look at documentations, corruption, maladministration. It also brought out a question around, you know, porous uh, borders. What is the human right culture? And should it take precedent over obligations and responsibilities of citizens and non-citizens? All these questions, in my view, fundamentally uh, question the ability of the current leadership to, be deci- to take decisive action against outlaws. You know, for national against nationals or internationals. And what we know for the fact that no other country will ever allow criminals to reign supreme in the name of human rights. No any other country will ever allow criminals to afford rights above those of victims. 
No other country in the world will ever turn blind eye when unskilled, you know, labor uh, takes literally, um, you know, opportunities um, over and above the nationals. No other country will allow the rule of law being violated. No other country will allow millions of undocumented foreign nationals roaming the street. And that is a fact. It's not about me talking. That is a fact. You go across, even in Africa, those, those, those fundamental remains. And as Africans, as South Africans, what is that we need to see? We need to see a president that is present. We need to see the intelligent community that is present and forthright. We need to see the police services um, that is not caught napping, that is proactive. And, and we need to see real actions. And I've picked up in some instances the conversation that the president had uh, in around the human rights issue. You know, he says, our constitution has enshrined the right to, right to life. This means that the state uh, should not be one of the terminates life. The surge of criminality should be addressed in other ways rather than ending people's life. End quote. And this obviously question was posed at the backdrop of death penalty. Because the, the reality is that majority of South Africans who are fed up, and for all reasons, around death penalty or around the crime that is actually persisting. And now we've picked up, you know, taking the, you know, the conversation further, that there's an attack, uh, you know, against foreign nationals, which by any stretch of imagination is unacceptable and therefore needs to be condemned with, with, with every possible way it's, you know, um, uh, possible. It, you know, we have heard or picked up snippets of uh, the National Association of Nigerian Students uh, answers calling upon the South African government to either end or hold, uh, you know, uh, protest or to a point if they, they fail to do that, they will unleash all sorts of, uh, you know, terrorism against South African companies in Nigeria. What do you make of that? What do you make of that as South Africans? And we've seen that police minister, you know, will give him credit for going to, you know, environment which is, you know, highly turbulent in Johannesburg, where spate of violence has been taken root, you know, where crowds of looters, you know, descended in the streets of Hillbrook, Gipstown, Rosettenville, and so on and so forth. We also picked up that the Premier of Gauteng, uh, David Makuro, has warned that uh, he will not hesitate to deploy, you know, army to areas plagued by xenophobic attacks and looting provinces. But this also begs the question, are we addressing the symptoms or the real cause of the problem? And, and you know, we before we went to the OIA, I had a, you know, shared with my colleague that I will introduce in a short while, that if South Africa had pretty much, you know, much to go by in terms of employability or employment rates, I don't think South Africans will bother that. But the fact that majority of South Africans are unemployed, we're sitting with almost 30% of unemployment rate using a narrow definition of employment. But when you're using a, a, a broader definition of unemployment, we're sitting almost like the 9%, which means every cent matters. You know, and you, the, if the Premier wants to respond by deploying army into halting violent ridden communities or suburbs. Is he not missing the boat? Is he not missing the mark? Because the issues at hand is about employment. Issues at hand is about economy. Surely this is this is in a test as a test for leadership.
which I think it is important for 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 South African leadership. And we have seen not only attacks against the, uh, the, the premier, the premier of Houting, in terms of uh, lack of a better word, uh, decisive action and being a proactive. In the, similarly, the president has been criticised, uh, you know, against his lack of responsiveness and so on and so forth. But the reality is that the reality of the matter is that South Africans are unemployed. South Africans will find every other excuse to vent out. And we should not be in a situation or environment where we are addressing the symptoms, you know, but we need to get to a point where we address the, sim- the, the root cause. In any case, before I get into the gist of these issues, I want to flag this. And I want to, you know, uh, you know, um, bring my colleague here, uh, who, who has become accustomed to the show. Good evening and welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thanks for having me. And, and again, as I was doing a, a prelude to the show in terms of reflecting on the kind of stuff that you've seen as a first leg of the show, what do you make of government response or leadership response to these kinds of issues that are taking place in Gauteng? Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for the question. So, I mean, the my starting point is to, you know, take leaf uh, from the fact that uh, most of these issues that South Africa is facing Again, they're fairly universal in nature. Of course, uh, in South Africa, we've got our own nuanced, um, you know, versions of the issues. I mean, if you go to, you look at the, in the south of Italy, you've, you have the same issues of uh, immigrants going into, into Italy, uh, the Italian government trying to uh, block entry, reserving areas for, for immigrants, illegal migrants, immigrants, that is. You find the same issue in in France. You find it. You find it pretty much everywhere. So the issues are fairly universal. What this tells you is that um, you know there's been there's been you know a disruption of some sort in lots of spheres that has resulted in movement, movement of people, movement of money, movement of any other thing. But specifically with regards to the movement of people. Um, in search of either opportunities where there's a pulling factor or where, you know, um, you know, people are being pushed out, out of their own environment by whatever, whether it's poverty, whether it's uh, civil strife or whatever it is, um, in search for opportunities. And I mean, naturally most, um, you know, when you look at all over the world, people then tend to go to places where it would appear that, um, you know, there would be opportunities. And um, Johannesburg, you know, South Africa is one of them, Johannesburg. But it's not only just Johannesburg. Um, you know, I remember I, I, I was born and grew up in, in a township, Namahale, outside of uh, Palaboro. We had the same issues in the uh, 80s, um, you know, uh, displacement of Mozambican nationals uh, from, you know, from Mozambique. Uh, into that part of the world in, in sort of, um, what is modern day, uh, Limpopo. Um, so these issues have been there, you know, for, for quite a while. Um, and, you know, we, some, some areas, uh, have experienced it more than others. But what this then tells you is that, you know, there's a couple of interventions that have to happen. I think on the one hand, um, you know, people who are legally in the country, uh, you know, will need to be protected. Uh, I mean, it's that, it's, it's, it's really simple. Uh, but people who probably, um, you know, do not have uh, the paperwork and whatever, you know, 
you know, we, we must face the issues. Because the, the, the reality is that, um, you know, there is so much that, um, you know, a place can, can, can take. There's so much that, um, you know, there's so much that, um, you know, the social services or even the infrastructure of a place can take. So I think this, the, 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 this issue basically it's a symptom that, um, we've got to have to, specifically government has to, uh, you know, dig deep and look at these issues of movement of people in a, in a much, much more in-depth and integrated way. Um, you know, there are no simple answers and simple solutions, but like in any environment where you have, um, in, in a situation of distress, uh, the first thing that you do is basically to stabilize the situation. So whatever the law enforcement agencies need to do uh, to stabilize the situation, uh, that's the first thing. And second thing is to do whatever it's required to 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 return a situation to normality. But the biggest job by far it's the long term intervention. Um, you know what do you do, um, especially in an environment where we know the unemployment figures uh, you know came out a couple of uh, weeks ago. You know joblessness amongst the youth. Um, you know especially in an environment where there's joblessness, um, where there isn't a lot. Um, you know to 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 share. You know among South Africans to start with. Uh, let alone, uh, you know, people from other nations that have come uh, in search for opportunities. When you've got that kind of environment, um, you know, things tend to, to flare up. Um, so I think there, there needs to be some serious uh, long-term interventions, um, you know, about, about the, the situation. Now, thank you very much for that insight, Dr. Marami. Uh, you, you raised two critical issues that I just want uh, to perhaps maybe thresh out. Um, we know that there's always a push factor and a pull factor. And a push factor, um, in, a, in an African context, it's about um, the, the poverty, it's about strife, it's about uh, instability, people being, you know, uh, uh, chased from their own neighborhoods because of, you know, strife. There's a pull factor. Obviously, South Africa is seen as a greener pastures, uh, you know, when you look at, you know, from the broader, you know, uh, African context, uh, and and we understand those kinds of issues, but be that as it may, I mean, you also made reference to how South African issues not immune or not alien from the broader global migration point of view, and in, in you made reference to uh, Italy, uh, uh, you know, Spain, uh, and so on and so forth. But what is different from how the Spaniards and the the French and the Greeks uh, and the Portuguese are dealing with the, 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 you know, unprecedented migration. There's almost like a structure that is put in place. There's almost like a system that is, in, that, that is put in place so that people are accorded, um, sufficient, uh, entry, uh, you know, uh, people are almost like guarded, not so much about opening borders, you know, uniformly or opening borders without really taking into context about the social and economic imperatives which a region or a country is facing. When we look at these kind of uh, protocols that happens uh, in, in, in Europe, for an example, vis-a-vis -vis African migration, either because of strife and poverty and, 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 and other, you know, uh, uh, unfortunate incidences, what is it that South Africa ought to be doing differently? You know, because we have almost, this, when you look at the stats, 
uh, of undocumented South Africans, um, foreign nationals in South Africa. It's staggering. You will not see that anywhere else in the world. You will not see, you know, because the reality is that the economists cannot absorb so much. Foreignism, education, you know, uh, health facility, and social services facility. South Africans are, have almost like, you know, venting out because there's this perception, real or, you know, factual, that foreign nationals are burdening the education sector, they are burdening the, the health sector, they're burdening housing infrastructure, and so on and so forth. So, 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 so these are real issues that South Africans are grappling with. From what we have seen as a world travel individuals, what is the best mechanic that South Africa act, you know, almost like have to address these issues differently? Yeah, th- thank you for the question. So I, mean, I must admit I'm not an expert in the area, but uh, and I'll just talk from a layman layman's point of view. I mean, um, and I'll talk about what I've seen elsewhere and uh, what I think. But I, I think for me, um, you know, the one thing that you you definitely see, and it so happens that um, a friend of mine actually, um, you know, spoke to me last week. Uh, he's been in in conversations with. Um, I think the Ethiopian uh, nationals that are, you know, live in South Africa and do business in, in South Africa. I think the one uh, element at a very simple level is, bas- is basic integration. You know, basic integration, um, you know, in, in communities where, you know, uh, foreign nationals and South Africans live side by side. Um, but over and above this, I think from a government point of view, I mean, I don't know to what extent uh, the security cluster uh, has got its uh, finger on the pulse. Um, you know, we, we live in a very, in, in what's called a VUCA society or VUCA times, uh, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. And I think the, the, the biggest element to look at within this VUCA is basically the, uh, the volatility. When you've got emotions and perceptions that, um, you know, are volatile, could be this today and that tomorrow. In, in, in those set of circumstances, your, your ability to build preparedness and slack in the system for it to be able to deal with whatever flares up is very important. Uh, so it cannot be that um, we only wake up when something flares up in Tefontaine or GP or so on. It cannot be. Uh, the, that, that's number one. Number two, it talks about, um, you know, the, the, the intelligence and the information, especially when you're living in an environment where there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, the intelligence uh, and the information gathering to help with the preparedness is the most important part so that you can diffuse whatever situation because there'll always be friction. Um, I mean, let, let's be, let's be uh, honest about it. Yeah. Let's be honest about it. There'll always be friction, but the issue is basically to make sure that the friction doesn't, um, you know, get out of control. And that preparedness from a VUCA point of view, for me, it's, uh, is the most critical bit. Uh, and the, 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 the second part being, you know, the intelligence and the information, the quality of the information about the, 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 the issues, um, that people are grappling with in specific communities. Um, you know, and without basically looking back into, into the past, but, um, 
you know, I mean, I remember when when I was growing up, uh, you know, not to glorify the the uh, the previous regime in in any way, uh, but they had a system. They had a system where they knew um, which um, townships were boiling points, and and you know what sort of what sort of things could potentially you know light a fire, you know. Um, so that kind of you know intelligence and knowledge, regardless. Um, you know, needs to be there so that you, 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 you're in control, you're in charge of the situation and you can diffuse whatever uh, can, uh, is diffusable. Um, you know, but also prepare the, um, you know, the law enforcement, uh, fraternity and, and communities to deal with whatever flares up that happen. Thank you very much for that insight, Mr. Demaremi. Uh, you raised a very interesting point, um, around the, the, the mechanic of the previous regime, apparently, was was very, uh, uh, very rigor in terms of deploying, you know, intelligence. Uh, because I mean, if apparently was not as good, uh, you know, South Africa would have been liberated a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And and they, they they were able to sustain the machinery through you know web of intelligence, which is quite an oracle that South Africans the, the, the new dispensation ought to have learned a lot from you know what really worked. Even though it worked for you know you know for evil purposes, mm-hmm. um, you know it, it's ironical that we don't seem to have learned a lot in terms of um, integration. But one of the issues that perhaps maybe you might just you know uh, flag in as we uh, about to part ways on this particular issue is the the NGOs that that from time to time comes across as champions of human rights. Mm-hmm. And my sense is that these NGOs that punch the culture of human rights, it's almost like they miss the point of the context. Mm-hmm. It is well and good to speak and advocate for human rights uh, in a context where, you know, there, there's fairness, there's justice, there's equity, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and obviously priority being given to South Africans, mm-hmm. priority being given to people that are perceived to be at the tail end. You know, but, but your take in terms of the broader narrative that has been punted by NGO sector, uh, in a context of, um, you know, the current wave of, of, of xenophobic attacks. And I just want to qualify my point. Yeah. Because, um, what one once reads about this human rights culture, you know, um, you know, human rights culture in a context of undocumented, you know, foreign nationals, mm-hmm. what sort of risk does that pose? To what extent can we push for human rights culture in an environment where we have millions of, of, of undocumented foreign nationals who are posing danger, you know, and, and risk to, to broader communities? And you know, there's no doubt. I mean, it's, it's, it's common cause that, I mean, you know, crime. Um, there's a positive correlation within porous borders as well as, you know, foreign nationals. So what would your take be around that particular issue? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I mean, I, I personally, I mean, I find that, uh, you know, throwing labels at things generally is not, it's probably the easiest answer and it's probably the most convenient, but it's not the most helpful. You've you got to dig deep and basically understand, do some kind of a root cause analysis. Yes, definitely, you know, h- human beings have got rights, you know, right to, to leave, a right to inhale, you know, uh, um, you know, Clean air and everything that goes with it, and and that's universal everywhere else. Um, but I, I guess in the context of uh, South Africa, uh, and especially what we're talking about, I think the issues are more. And, and I mean, I, I guess, and I still go back to the same issue that if there was a lot going around, 
If there was a lot to divide, to, to share amongst uh, everybody, I doubt that we would have this, uh, most of these issues. But the fact that people are unemployed, there's joblessness, um, and, you know, people are, it's not, not because people are, um, are not trying to go and find jobs. You know, within that environment, whew, my goodness, it's, it's going to be difficult to justify, uh, anything to somebody who, uh, it's a bona fide citizen of South Africa and say you don't have an RDP house because of X or because somebody else has got a better ride than you. Uh, you can't find a job, whether it's uh, at a uh, fast food retail, retail outlet, because somebody else has got a better ride than you. I think that will be difficult to justify. Um, that that will be my, my, my point of view. But, I mean, uh, if the economy was growing, it, was a, it will be a totally different matter. I couldn't agree with you. Yeah, if the economy was growing and it was expanding at a rapid rate and it was, it was absorbing uh, lots of uh, unemployed graduates and the, the, uh, the youth in the townships, it will be a totally different matter. If we're absorbing, you know, our, our aunts and, uh, and our sisters as domestic workers into the economy, it would be a totally different matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- thanks very much for that, for, for that uh, breathtaking insight, uh, Dr. Marimi. I want to bring in uh, Eric as we are about to, to take a, a break. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Eric, hi and welcome. Hi, good evening, Nimrod. Good, good evening, Kepe. How are yeah. you? Just a quick well, reflection as we're yeah, up. Yeah, uh, the, 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 I picked up on, 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 in the car on the way here. Um, I think there's been a call. My community always sends me here to to say we need uh, leadership. We need a definite sign of leadership, and it bridges us into the next issue on the economy, on state-owned companies, and, of course, on these disruptions in the community. What do we expect of our leadership? So if you've got David Makura, I didn't hear it, but saying, you know, he's going to bring in an army, you know, clearly you don't agree with that. So that's not really leadership. So if in a couple of thoughts, okay, on what really we need to think about, what are we actually expecting from our leaders in the crisis? They can't solve the unemployment problem today, yeah. okay, in this current crisis. My own view, if you look at Carrie Lam in Hong Kong, she's got these hundreds of thousands of people burning things down in Hong Kong. She's not dealing with the issues. She's not showing the leadership to say, let us engage to see what do we do to sort out the problem in Hong Kong. In my view, both from national level, Cyril Ramaphosa, David Makura locally, and um, our mayor need to get people around the table and say, how do we deal with this issue? This foreigner issue has been burning for too long. It's, it's gone out of control. No one knows really what is, who's got what rights. How do you control documentation? So that's my contribution on this one. We need the guys to really deal with the issues hands on. Look, I'm in consultation. They need to bring representatives. I mean, when I was involved in industry labor relations, it wasn't, and we had unrest with striking workers. It wasn't a, a solution to bring in the police to kick them out. The, the, the solution lay in getting representatives of that of the workers sitting around the table with them, finding out what the issues are and how we can solve them and getting agreement. If you look at uh, Marikana in retrospect, and if Marikana had to happen today, I don't know if anybody would be any the wiser how to deal with it. People violent with nobkiris killing people, and yet how do you control them without mowing them down? It's not easy.
But you've got to address it. Look, I mean, maybe as, as we are about to take a break in the next 10 seconds, this is one thing that I want to leave uh, colleagues um, just to ponder on. I mean, um, my view is that, um, you know, it's very easy for us to pontificate, hmm. um, you know, uh, sitting in, in comfortable air cons, you know, places. It's very easy, but uh, we, we really need to really get deep or, or be exposed to environments with majority of people hmm. who have become so desperate to a point where they've got nothing to lose. I think that's the biggest danger. And and we need to stop philosophizing. We need to stop, you know, really, really, uh, you, know, uh, you know, conversing amongst ourselves. We need to widen the conversation to include the, those that sit mm. at the periphery. Sure. Because there's no point. My, my assessment with all the conversations that I've attended, uh, pretty much, in, you know, over the past three years, very few representation from those that sit in the periphery yeah. and and that we're missing an opportunity there because we always hear our own voices you know at some point you i i i could almost like anticipate what eric is going to say mm. and mm. eric may not necessarily be a representation mm. of those that sit in deep throat and yeah. those sits in in Togoza, that sleeps in tambisa that's and may you know what i mean mm. so those are the those are the voices that are missing yeah in the yeah. broader dialogues around sure. how do we change sure. the environment on, yeah on that let me let's take a break we'll come back in a second this is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back. It is now 14 to 7 o'clock. It's amazing how time flies. We've just, um, for those who have just joined us, I'm having a conversation with Ntate uh, Muremi, who is the MD at, um, um, at Mark to Market Capital, as well as Eric Stellerman, a regular voice to the show. He's the CEO of a London Business School SA online. And, and we're having a conversation really about the state of, of emergency, so to speak, with the kinds of um, volatility that we've seen in Tipistown, you know, in, in, in central Johannesburg, Tembisa, Ekurulene, and so on and so forth. And really we're asking questions around leadership. What actually is missing? Um, you know, and, and those are kind of real conversations that we had a, um, a really had a, a high level sense of as to why we're allowing the situation to deteriorate to a point where, you know, foreign nationals are deemed evil and and we we contend that if the economy was growing at the level or at the pace that it's supposed to be growing the chances are most people will not be bothered about these kind of issues you know and and the the, the kind of conversation that we have is really about uh, you know the the need you know to to really grow the economy that's a fundamental issue um you know eric as we are about to enter the second leg of the conversation which is really around you know how do you turn on an soe your parting short uh, as we recap on on the the, the the first leg of the show. Well, I can only bridge into the second leg, seeing that we at eighteen forty eight. Yeah, we don't have more than ten minutes to to talk about. I think you wanted to talk about state-owned companies, and the economy and the state of leadership there. Uh, I think uh, you know. I've read uh, so many. I'm sure you also have um, pieces in the last few days about the economy and about ESCOM and state-owned companies. One of them is you know that. Maybe Cyril is a reluctant leader and, and his leadership style is not, you know, right up in the front line, uh, uh, placating and, and, and shining lights. He, he, he kind of doesn't do that. He sets up processes and he gets his team working around different issues. Having said that, I think it's time for him because people are taking money out of the country. There's very little confidence. There's another, you know, investment kind of outlook right now. People need an urgent 
sign of confidence in the country. So the message again to Cyril is he personally needs to come into the picture and show his face and, and, and build in the, on all of these issues. You need Trump. You need whoever it is. Uh, Angela Merkel doesn't hesitate to step up when she's needed. Um, um, so yeah, on the on the side of state-owned companies, I must say the good news I found is that there were some very um, interesting uh, 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 documents and 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 publications put out in the last week or so. So I think, of course, Tito Mboweni's economic towards an economic strategy has started a very interesting and meaningful debate about you know whether you agree fully with it or you don't. I mean, Musi Mamani agrees with it fully. He says that's DA economic policy. He wants it implemented ASAP. It's, of course, stirred the pot in Kasatu. Why weren't we consulted? So get round the table with Kasatu, with South African Communist Party, with all the parties, with business, and engage on it. And I think there's some very constructive ideas in his proposal. He's, he can because he doesn't really need the job, Tito. Um, and he's sitting somewhere in Machubuskluf. He can't afford to be bold. <laughs> and I think he's the kind of guy who's in charge of the money in this country that that you need in that position. I, I, I give him, you know, high marks for a show of leadership, for boldness, for coming out and giving direction. The other uh, reasonable good news, I had an in, uh, a discussion with the chairman's office um, of, of ESCOM. And what I discovered there is that there are actually three processes uh, in place, uh, uh, in play on state-owned companies generally and for, for ESCOM in particular. So one of them is the restructuring of the entity itself um, into perhaps three different branches, generation, transmission, and distribution. What's that all about? How does it solve the problem? Number two, how to restructure the debt to get rid of or reduce 440 billion rands worth of debt in ESCOM. And they've got uh, Freeman Nomvabo, the head of South African Institute of Chartered Accountants, who's got every accounting firm under his wing to put in input from a financial point of view to restructure that debt. And I'll tell you some of the thoughts that they've got there I found amazing, including from, from Tito. And thirdly, how do you restructure the operation so that income exceeds expenditure? How much extra income can you generate in, in ESCOM and how much expenditure can you realistically reduce? We know there are 46,000 people at ESCOM. You can't fire two-thirds of them that you don't need. It's just not doable. How can you implement some cost reduction, both in coal expenditure, diesel expenditure, on the supply side and staff, how can you increase revenue and how can you restructure the debt? So the one thing, if I may just add, that I found very, very constructive and highly interesting is that for the 440 billion rands worth of debt in ESCOM's balance sheet, which people want them, the government to guarantee, which it can't really guarantee any further and bail them out endlessly, the best suggestion I've heard has been to sell off some or all of the coal-fired power stations, which are worth 450 billion rand, and with that money pay down the debt. You don't need all those power, to own those power stations. You have independent power producers. When you do that, you separate 
the power generation from buying the power, which is power transmission, you then have options. You can then pay on an efficient basis for coal-fired power, for alternative energy power, and that creates efficiency. So for now, I was very encouraged by what I see there, and that the paper on the restructuring of ESCOM will be released, in, I think, in two weeks' time to Parliament. So there's action happening behind the scenes. We just need the guys to stand up and be, you know, do better PR so people build confidence. Look, I mean, I'm I'm glad you you, you reflected on your uh, conversation uh, you had with ESCOM leadership around um, the 400 and uh, you know 440 billion rand that appears on the balance sheet. But mm. I think the, the problem hasn't really been so much about insight on the technicalities. Mm. The problem has always been around the willpower. And the extent to which leadership is bold enough to take those kinds of decisions. I mean, PR is just one bit. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the execution sure. of, of those kinds of, of uh, I just want to bring in, in Dr. Maremi, you know, for him to reflect on the, the proposed strategy. Look, we have, it's common cause that let's unbundle ESCOM. You know, let's, let's, let's look at, I mean, I'm, I'm actually quite happy to hear the proposal around the selling of the assets yes. in, in terms of those kind in the full call, which makes a lot, you know, difference. Yeah. But, but, you know, the elephant in the room is the unions. Yeah. How do you bring confidence yeah. around all the stakeholders that the proposed solutions aren't necessarily going to benefit the few, but will benefit the majority? You know, so what, what, how would you address that kind of concern, which is eminent and right? Yeah. So, I mean, the last time when we were in studio, <clears throat> excuse me, we touched a little bit about uh, ESCOM. And I mentioned at the time definitely that the, the balance sheet needs to be restructured. Um, because it's, it's just not sustainable. Um, and of course, there's a couple of options. But I think knowing what to do, it's one thing. Doing it, it's a different story altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made reference to the fact that, you know, there have been all sorts of plans before. Uh, I mean, you know, as early as, uh, I think, 2014, 2015, there was another one uh, to shave off uh, the cost structure. Uh, of ESCOM, I think to the tune of about 225 billion rand over, over five years. Um, let's look at the scoreboard. Did it happen? Uh, and what, why did it not happen? Or why did it not happen to the same, to the extent that it, it was meant to happen? I think for me, that's the big issue. You go to, you know, to SABC, same issue. There's been a turnaround plan after a turnaround plan. Um, you know, so for me, I think the big issue is, are we, you know, do we have um, efficacious leaders who will make things happen? Um, and is the solution palatable to everybody? It doesn't have to be. Uh, but most importantly, can we make it happen? Thank you very much for that. I think you hit it on a nail um, because yeah. we, 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 we do not, in this country, we, we don't have absence of strategic documentation. Mm. It is execution. But execution is all about the power play. It's all about the power dynamics. And the extent to which you have courageous <coughs> leadership, that is made, that, that is keen and able to make <coughs> an unpalatable decisions, you know, uh, in a longer picture, that, or in a longer vein, that, that advances the course of, of how would you respond uh, to I'd that? I'd like to make two points about implementation. First of all, around agreement with the key stakeholders. Now, you have to come to an agreement with Kosatu. Otherwise, nothing is doable. There's a forum for that that is NEDLAC, and Tito must get round the table with the leader. Remember, Kosatu are allies 
of Cyril Ramaphosa and the ANC. They backed Cyril Ramaphosa. So you need to take them into your confidence. You can't slash 26,000 jobs. What can be done on common cause? How do you deal with wage increases, salary increases, benefits on an equitable basis around the table together? So that's the one thing that has to be done. There has to be agreement. You can't have conflict and, and taking painful for one stakeholder and not for another stakeholder. Secondly, you need competence. And when it comes to competence, we discussed it last week with the CEO of Business Leadership South Africa, Bussi, and we're going to follow up on that conversation. You've got highly competent private sector management organizations in this country who can lend and put in expertise to help to implement. I heard another fantastic thing I read today from Jonathan Bloomberg, the CEO of Discovery Healthcare. He says they're going to help government to get the public sector health system right while they are implement, trying to implement NHI. He hasn't walked away from it. Even the CEO of Netcare has said, Richard Freelander, both from our community, who have said they're going to put shoulders to the wheel where businesses got the expertise to make it work. Okay. My parting shot. Yeah, I'll chip in. And my chipping in is to say I think there are two broad issues in terms of uh, execution. I think on the one hand there's definitely an issue of competence and capability. But on the other hand, it's basically how you come up with your own strategy. Yeah. Uh, you know, so the the game of, you know, huge restructuring, it's not like a relay game or a relay where somebody starts with the baton and then run and say, hey, Kosati over there, here's the baton, can you take it uh, and run with it? I think that's one of the fundamental flaws in how we've come up with solutions to some of the, the issues. Yeah, sure. You go and get a BCG, they lock themselves in a room, they yep. look elsewhere in the world, they Correct. go to APRI, and then they say, look, you know, here are the norms in terms of, you know, what a, a, a utility should do. And then they then get out of the room and say, voila, here, here's a document. And then, then you give it to Solidarity and Noom and, uh, and Noom. It's not going to fly. Mm. You know, I've been there before. Sure. You know, so what you need to do, I think the first time around is to say, guys, we've got a problem. You know, we've got a problem and we need to solve it. It may take a little longer, <clears throat> but you guarantee that at least you're going to take everybody along with you on the journey and say, We've got problem number one, problem number two, and problem number three. And look for solutions. And make sure that everybody has looked at all those solutions and have discounted those that are not workable and have, um, you know, uh, had a thumbs up on those that, are, that work. For me, that's the fundamental, fundamental issue. But here's another issue that and I agree with, 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 your, with your value proposition. Um, you know, we have 250 SOEs in this country. Mm-hmm. And it would have been better if we had f- we have fewer numbers because each of these also is, is have um, union and um, 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 uh, affiliations, other yeah. than Hawo, Kosatu, and Numsa, and God knows in other unions. So, so, so it is almost difficult, you know, you know, to to have a a narrative that suggests that there is homogeneity in terms of union and affiliations. So the biggest issue, you know, when you were dealing with ESCOM, we all know that ESCOM is too big to fail. Granted, but SABC, SAA, SA Express, <coughs> Dinell, 
all these entities have different uh, you know affiliation you know that is why it is important you know that whatever conversation that you have with unions it cuts across you can't have a, a conversation with with SABC uh, um, um Dinel, uh, you know, SA Express, SA, and so on and so forth, independently, because these are institutions that have similar, yeah, for sure, you know, challenges, absolutely, you know. So, yeah. so, so that's that's the million dollar question. Mm. How do you get leadership on board across the SOE sector, yeah. so that we're able to drive one messaging yeah. around compromise, yes, about trade offs, you know, about <coughs> about the bigger picture. That's where uh, President Ramaphosa needs to step up. Again, that's that's the leadership that people are calling for, saying we're implementing the process, we're taking everyone in t- on board with us, yeah. and no one's going to get left behind, but we're doing it, you know, because then the, the process can't drag out forever. There's a sense of urgency. That's what we need to know, and, a, you know, a sense of we can do this. You know, my sense is that <coughs> I think we need to categorize issues into different uh, areas. So there are cross-cutting issues uh, that are much more structural, which basically bedevil every state-owned institution. Okay, all of those issues are mostly structural. Okay, if you look at uh, talk about the DFIs, development finance institutions, it doesn't matter which one it is. Whether you talk about the provincial ones, the national ones, they all have the same issue which is an unfunded mandate. That's a structural issue. Because then government and politicians come and say, we want you to go and fund cooperatives. Okay? Mm. Cooperatives are high risk. They're not cash generative. There's not even information on how to you know, lend to them. Uh, so you're going to take risk. And when you take risk, you're going to have lots of impairments on, 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 on your books. So those things bedevil all the DFIs. Okay. So you're going to have to deal with the unfunded mandate. Similarly with the SABC, you've got the, uh, the unfunded mandate in terms of the public broadcasting. Okay. That's unfunded. Okay. And what government has done over the years was to, um, put in a grant in the, on the income statement, um, into most of these uh, SOEs. But because our fiscal has been, you know, fairly wobbly, the, 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 the grant has been going down. So. How do you deal with this cross-cutting issues, which are much more cultural, uh, much more structural? I think that's a more netlag and you know big uh, big boys and girls, but there are operational issues which don't need the big boys and girls. Whoever is the CEO, whoever is the board, they have to deal with some of those issues. I mean, if you're operating profit, um, you know, before you take out all this non you know non um, uh, operational charges. You know, your operating profit is negative. You know, that's purely the executive and, and the board. Yeah, well, un- unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We don't have yeah. much time. Sure. Uh, thank you for your, for, for your insight, Dato Maremi, uh, who is the, uh, the managing, managing director at Mark II Market Capital, and of course, a regular voice to the, to the show, uh, Dato Eric Stillerman, who is the CEO of, uh, you know, uh, Net Growth, as well as uh, um, London, uh, London Business School SA. Uh, colleagues, thank you very much for your input. You. And I, I think you know, colleagues have had a mouthful and uh, to, you know, well, I think we've given yep. them food for thought. Thank you. And for absolutely. Sure. And actually, I mean, again, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 